the sons of Ephraim, Shuthalah and Ezer and Eliad. Now the people of Gath, who were born in the land, killed them because they came down to raid their cattle. And their father, Ephraim, mourned many days, and his brothers came to comfort him. Ephraim went in to his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Beriah because disaster had befallen his house. His daughter was Shira, who built both lower and upper Beth Horon and Uzen Shira. When most modern Bible readers get to the early chapters of the first book of Chronicles, their reading program tends to falter they find themselves dealing with endless lists of names as the chronicler tells them the descendants of all the patriarchs and kings of Israel. I don't blame anyone for losing heart. I am a great lover of the stories of the Bible, but I have often been tempted to skip all of the extensive genealogies of the Bible. But that would be a shame because every so often, mixed in among those interminable lists of unpronounceable names, you will find a little germ of a story, one that makes you ask a few questions that might well lead you down a few deep rabbit holes. I offer you, for example, the story of Shira, daughter of Ephraim, Hers is a story that I am convinced more people need to hear about. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 7.9 Shira. Warrior Princess of Ephraim. If, during her life, you had told Shira, the daughter of Ephraim, who was the son of Joseph, the story of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, or the slightly less musical version of that story that is found in the book of Genesis, she would have stared at you incredulously. She would not have understood how anyone could have thought that her grandfather had been kidnapped and taken off to live in slavery in Egypt. And the very idea that her father, Ephraim, might have been born to an Egyptian mother and went on to live in Egypt for his entire life would have mystified her. And just wait until she heard that according to the book of Exodus, 
all of the descendants of Ephraim and his brother and his uncles remained in Egypt for about 400 years, which would mean that neither she herself nor many generations of her descendants ever lived to see the promised land. In fact, I think we're supposed to assume that none of them lived there until the generation of her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grand-nephew, a fellow named Joshua, son of Nun. I'm pretty sure she would have found that rather hilarious. For the only life that She-Ra knew was lived in the land of Israel, in the beautiful hill country of Ephraim, in the heartland of what would someday be called the Kingdom of Israel. Oh, that didn't mean that she knew nothing of Egypt. Yes, she had never actually seen the pyramids or the waters of the great Nile River, but she did often hear about such places and had many dealings with the people from that land. Her people might not have been slaves in Egypt, but it did often feel as if they were slaves to Egypt. The empire dominated much of the trade and production throughout the Levant and was always ready to take its generous share of every transaction. Egyptian officials were common and Egyptian gods were ubiquitous. The gods always wanted their share too. But the family of Ephraim did their best to keep out of most of that by remaining up in the hill country and out of the plains where they could be prey to Egyptian chariots. They mostly got by farming and keeping some small herds and flocks, but they could also sometimes get involved in much more risky enterprises. And that was where the problems truly began. Shuthala, Ezer, and Iliad, the sons of Ephraim, were Shira's brothers. Shuthala had always been quiet, reserved, and cautious, as befitted the eldest son and heir. But Ezer and Iliad, they could be pretty wild. They were always laughing and joking and usually playing pranks on just about anybody in the household. They just had a way of getting in trouble. Shira respected her eldest brother, but the other two she had always just adored. They could be rude and crude, and they had a certain tendency to do very foolish things but they always seemed to get away with their foolishness. 
She loved them for that too. And so, when she got up one morning to hear that her two big brothers had already left for the day, that they were headed down into the plains, she knew that they were likely planning on getting into trouble. But she was not too concerned. She got dressed, ate some breakfast, and began to go about her day. But the next day, a great stirring arose throughout the household. Some messengers had arrived from Gath, down on the coastal plain, and they came in anger with dire news. The elders of Gath were furious. It seemed that the sons of Ephraim had headed out to their city on the previous day and done so with the intention of causing much mischief. They had gone to do their favorite thing, which was to rustle cattle. But this time, they had been caught red-handed in the very midst of liberating a rather valuable bull. The elders had sent their representatives with the word that the two young men had been judged and they had been summarily put to death. Ephraim was being given nothing more than the gracious opportunity to claim the bodies of his dead children. Shira would never forget what followed as the entire household walked in solemn procession all the way to Gath. Her clothes were torn and her scalp was itchy from the dust and ashes in her hair. She couldn't stop weeping and she remembered everything about her brothers and struggled with the realization that she would never see them again, never hear their laughter, or see them pull one of their stupid pranks. Her father, walking alongside her, was even more inconsolable than her, if that was possible. But the further they progressed, the more his sorrow was overtaken by his rage. He began to curse the inhabitants of Gath, the Gittites, they were called. He declared at great length that they were ugly, abominable, and that they smelled bad. Above all, he repeated again and again, they were evil, a blight upon the earth. The very idea that they should be angry with his boys for stealing their cattle? That they should seek vengeance for such a meaningless little prank made them detestable. He called upon Elohim, his God, to do some of the most unspeakable things to them that Shira had ever heard. All of this 
as you can imagine, made a great impression on the young woman. But so did the journey itself. She had never been out of the hill country before, and she took in everything that she passed with wide eyes. She took notice, for example, as they followed the path that led out of her father's territory. It was a narrow trail that led down the hill rather steeply. As she looked around her, she noted that the road was overshadowed on either side by two hills. She asked her eldest brother, Shuthala, where they were, and he explained that this was the only road down out of the hill country that a company of any size could pass along for miles. It was essentially the gateway to the territory of her father. She thought about that as she looked up at the two surrounding hilltops. She mentioned to her brother that it seemed to her that if anyone controlled that high ground, they would be able to do many things. They could control trade for many miles around. They could ambush wealthy merchants and take their goods. The possibilities were endless. But Shuthala dismissed her thoughts as a woman's foolishness. And of course, that only made her miss her brothers all the more. Sure, if she had shared such thoughts with them, they likely would have made a joke out of it and made fun of her because of it. But at least they would have listened. She dissolved into fresh tears. When she finally returned home, after the days of terrible anger and sorrow, Shira went off into the hills for a day of reflection. There she made a vow to herself that she would fight against the injustice of this world, particularly against the injustice of people who dared to punish other people for stealing their cows and bulls. Of course, as with any vow, she needed to make it in the name of some god. She considered, of course, making her vow in the name of her father's god, Elohim. That would be fitting, of course, as she saw herself taking vengeance for the evil done to her father. But eventually, she decided she needed to take her own deity. She decided that a deity popular among the Egyptians, who had settled among the Canaanites, would suit her very well. Horon was a god who specialized in magic and incantations. He seemed like just the right sort to give her the special boost that she needed. And so, 
she went into the room of her brothers, Ezer and Eliad. They had left most of their belongings behind when they had set out, of course. Cattle rustlers need to travel light. So she was not surprised to find in a box of Eliad's things his bronze sword. This she took and prayed to Horon. She asked the god to enchant the sword and make it a talisman of power that it would be able to transform her into the defender of her family's honor and the avenger of those who would wrong them. As she took up the sword, she cried, For the honor of Horon! I am Shira. Warrior Princess of Ephraim. Shira never lost the sense of grievance, duty, and honor that she had found on those first days after the death of her brothers. But she did mature. She came to learn, for one thing, some sympathy for the Gittites and their desire not to have people constantly stealing their cattle. That did make some sense to her. Her father, though, he certainly never mellowed at all. About a year after the whole affair, he had another son. But far from this being a symbol of him focusing on the future and the hope of a better life for his family, he made it very clear to everyone that he was still clinging to his resentment for the disaster that had befallen his family by calling the child Beria. Shira felt for the poor child, her baby brother, and that for all of his life he would have to carry a name that basically meant disaster. How could any child thrive with such a label placed upon him? This was something that convinced her to take a different approach from her father. Rather than focusing on the past evil that they had experienced, she would become the kind of warrior who would build a better future. Oh, she still had her fantasies of taking up her magical sword and descending onto the plains to mow down the Gittites in their hundreds. But she recognized now that that was a foolish course of action that would likely only result in further disaster. So she began to think of more productive ways to triumph over the people of the plains.
The plan took years. First, Shira had to persuade a significant number of people from her father's clan and their allies to join her in her crazy scheme. It took a lot of talking to persuade them that all their effort would be worth it because she was going to ask them to work very hard. But eventually, she felt as if she had enough in her party. There were about 20 families altogether. That wasn't near enough to found and establish two cities and fill them with people. But she was sure that once they had demonstrated just how prosperous their cities could be, many others would come and join them. And so she led them out from her father's household and down the path towards the plain until they came to that spot where the narrow pass went between the two small mountains. She set the men to work and on top of each of the two hills they established a small fortress and simple houses for the families. They started out by ambushing and raiding the various parties that passed through on the narrow way. That was astonishingly lucrative at first. But it wasn't too long before word of the dangers of the pass spread. And, even though the alternate routes went many miles out of the way, many traveling parties began to use them to go around the pass. Shira had expected this. In the second phase of her plan, she sent representatives of the two cities out with a message. They proclaimed that the pass had taken on the patronage of a new god, the god Horon. Horon was well known all throughout the Canaanite territories and also among the Egyptian representatives. Horon was famous for his spells and incantations which were often invoked for protection. So the message was made clear. Rather than a place of danger, people could now consider the pass as a safe way to go in and out of the hill country. In honor of this patronage, the two cities on either side of the pass, the upper city and the one that was lower down the pass, were both given the name Beth Horon, the house of Horon. Of course, there was another part of the message that was not spoken quite so clearly, but was understood nonetheless. If the past now had a patron deity, then such a god needed to be duly respected and honored. Travelers would be expected to demonstrate their gratitude to the god in practical ways, 
and the inhabitants of the two new cities that overlooked the pass would be only too happy to assist them in finding ways to show their appreciation. It turned out that Horon was particularly fond of gifts of gold and silver. And, of course, if any travelers failed to show the proper respect, the men of Beth Horon could hardly be blamed if they allowed their zeal for their patron god to overpower them. And so, now that the cost of passage was set at a more reasonable rate, and people could feel safe, the traffic through the pass increased again, as did the treasury of the people of Shira. The new cities of Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon grew and prospered. Shira was very proud indeed of what she had built. It was true that at times she remembered her youthful vow to slaughter the Gittites with some regret that she had not followed through. But in her maturity, she came to understand that there could be other ways, profitable ways, of getting back at those who had so unjustly killed her brothers. She certainly always relished the opportunity to find ways to charge them extra whenever they passed through her territories. So, thanks in no small part to the wisdom and foresight of Shira, the family of Ephraim prospered and grew strong and numerous in the hills. And in time, though he never quite forgot the grief he carried for his sons, Ephraim began to recognize the valuable jewel that he had in his daughter. In honor of her contribution and in memory of his two lost sons, when it came time to divide his estate, he made a rather unusual division. He gave a portion of his legacy to Shuthala, his eldest and most level-headed son. He gave a portion to Beria, his disaster child. But the third portion he gave to Shira, who he thought of as his strongest child, though he would have never said that to the other two. When her father finally died and was laid to rest with his fathers, Shira went out to the land that he had given her. She saw it as a testimony to what she had accomplished, and that is why she called it Uzen Shira the portion of Shira. So, there you have it. The story of a princess who seems to have lived in the wrong place 
or at the wrong time, and yet who did some pretty awesome things. There are so many things about this story that make me ask questions. The Chronicles, in the Bible, were written relatively late. They make reference to the Edict of Cyrus that was given in 539 BCE, so they must have at least been written after that. And yet, in this passage at least, they seem to be completely unaware of the Genesis and Exodus account that has Ephraim and his children living in the land of Goshen in Egypt. But how could the author not be aware of that whole story, which was so essential to the identity of the Hebrew people? Nearly all scholars and archaeologists agree that the whole story of a great exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt is not historical. The evidence is pretty clear that the Israelite tribes grew up and came into existence in the hill country of Israel, exactly where this story places Shira and her family. That makes me wonder, did the chroniclers, whoever they were, know about the story of the Exodus, but also knew where the people of Israel really came from? Did they just not care about the contradiction? Maybe because they understood that the Exodus was a powerful founding myth for the Israelite people, but was not truly reliable history. It is an interesting thought. But if it was embarrassment at the seeming contradiction in this story that has made people ignore the amazing story of the accomplishments of Shira, that is a shame. She apparently built two cities of enormous strategic importance and named them, for some reason, for a popular Canaanite and Egyptian god. Her father recognized her importance by allowing her to inherit a portion alongside her brothers. She is quite an impressive figure for her time. And besides, we could always use one more princess of power. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Do subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. And please leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. Theme music for the podcast is Ada by Kevin McLeod. And the mood music for this episode was Return of the Hero by Sasha End. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at Retelling the Bible. .wordpress.com Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash 
Retelling the Bible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.